0: This reading from Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, can be found on page 1066 in the Bible hard copy. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
1: Second reading is from Revelation chapter 11, beginning at verse 11, and this is on page 1205. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honour, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God.
2: The Holy Gospel, according to John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Praise, praise glory to God. God. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of fish, 153. do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus was asking him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger you dressed yourself and went where you were wanted, where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. This is the gospel of Christ.
3: Christ, Christ, the word. Christ is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. Deborah said to us last week, Well, I wasn't here, but I read it uh, Easter is not over. Easter lasts for 50 days, and it's 50 days of alleluias, 50 days to reflect on what it means to worship and follow a crucified and risen Messiah, what it means to worship and follow a crucified and risen Messiah, which is, I think, what that gospel is all about. Matthew and Mark, and to some extent Luke, but mostly Matthew and Mark, they kind of depict the resurrection and the disciples' awe, and that's kind of it. they just like, the Gospels kind of end and leave you hanging, almost. John keeps coming back to it, keeps coming back to the disciples' experiences and encounters with the risen Jesus. John says that this, that we just heard, thank you, Jesse, great reading, was the third encounter with the group of 12 disciples after the resurrection. Doesn't include the women interestingly but the the with the the group of the 12 the ones deborah talked about last week thomas and all that that was the first two encounters i always grew up with the story as being called the breakfast on the beach is my sister here no yes hey sister um for some unknown reason our father um who had no particular involvement with sunday school um in the church we grew up in loved the breakfast on the beach, and he was always trying to corral the church families on Easter day to get up early and go to the Pawatahanui Inlets or Plymouth Beach or something and have a barbecue to celebrate the breakfast on the beach. It was kind of cool, but I didn't really quite get the way that it fitted into the overall story of the resurrection, I think. There's a lot going on in that story, thank you Jesse, again, but reading it this time, it felt to me like the whole miraculous catch of fish is a setup it's like jesus setting up the conversation the encounter with peter one question that new testament scholars like to argue about is how much john when he wrote the gospel knew about the other gospels matthew mark and luke did he know they existed at all had he read them did he have them in front of him yes no maybe not For me, this story of the miraculous catch of fish is one of the reasons I'm pretty sure John did know the other Gospels, and in this case, especially the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is the only other Gospel to include a miraculous catch of fish. But he includes it right near the start of the Gospel in chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, this happens. Peter is... Blown away and accepts the summons to follow Jesus. And from that, Jesus commissions him to fish for people. That's the only time the story appears in any gospel until now. So I think John, and surely Jesus too, already has that story in mind. Peter saw the miraculous catch and gave up everything to follow Jesus. But then When he sees jesus tortured and humiliated and executed he jumps ship the depth of his conviction to follow is forgotten when the heat goes on but jesus has not forgotten the commission for him to fish for people and so i feel like reading it the whole miracle of those 153 fish feels like an arrangement by Jesus to remind Peter of that first commission and to recommission him for the role that he has in the witness of the church. The 153 fish are really interesting. Um, I reread this article by Richard Borkham on the significance of the 153 fish, and it's so good. But when I tried to summarize it, I got completely bamboozled and couldn't do it in less than about three hours. So I decided not to. But he uses the 153 fish to argue that chapter 21 of John's Gospel is integral to it. It's not a later add-on, as some people would say, for various reasons. And one of them is that if you kind of do your sneaky numerical decoding, you can give numbers to each Greek or Hebrew letter, and people get obsessed with this stuff. But the evidence he puts out is, I think, pretty incontrovertible, that John has put these deliberate clues in there, And I'll skip out the working, but to give you the conclusion that Peter is being recommissioned to fish for people. That there are references in there to Ezekiel chapter 47 when the Dead Sea is turned from salt water into fresh water and fish are found there. And that John is referencing that and saying this is the church being recommissioned to fish for people and invite them into the new life that Jesus promises and it makes sense to me because it rings so true with the message that is there on the surface Peter is the archetypal pastor and evangelist and Jesus needs him to get back on the task of fishing for people or to change the metaphor as Jesus does pasturing people, shepherding people gathering Jesus' sheep You all know how he does this. You've probably heard hundreds of sermons on this. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And it's a kind of three-part expunging of the three times that Peter had denied Jesus in the build-up to the crucifixion. It's really moving to kind of dwell on that and think about it at length. I'm not going to do that, but there's a lot of rich stuff to explore there for ourselves too, our own willingness to own the name of Jesus is it born of love devotion commitment or convenience and fear equally striking to me is that Jesus concludes this set up confrontation with Peter with the command follow me he says it again in a few verses time and those are the last words that Jesus speaks in John's gospel follow me And they are the words that Jesus spoke to Peter right back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel and right back at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. And they are almost the first words that he says in John's Gospel. John is bookending the story of Jesus with this summons, follow me, follow me at the beginning, follow me at the end. And I think in that, John is highlighting... There's no particular difference between being a disciple who knew Jesus in the flesh when he was bodily present from knowing him in his risen existence. The requirement for all of us, whether we were there 2000 years ago, whether we're here now, is to follow Jesus. What's asked of you, John is saying, those who will come in later generations is exactly the same. Follow me. One of the things that really stands out to me from that is that following Jesus, even the risen Jesus, maybe especially the risen Jesus, following him still involves being prepared to suffer for it. The consequence for Peter of being recommissioned to fish for people is that he must submit his plans to those of Jesus. He will no longer get to go where he wants to go. He will have to stretch out his hands and be led places that he does not wish to be. It's again very moving, as it seems to anticipate Peter's own death as a witness to the Lord he once denied. That kind of undercurrent of being prepared to suffer it was also present in the lectionary choice of Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Paul. In very quick time, his agenda of murderous threats against the church is replaced by a new agenda, an agenda of submission to the way of the cross, surrender to the way of Jesus. Paul's conversion is an extraordinary thing. Often when people are trying to say, you know, did the resurrection really happen and we kind of dissect the gospels and look at the eyewitnesses and all that, Paul almost gets forgotten. But his story is, I think, a strangely compelling witness to the resurrection that's really hard to contradict. It's really powerful evidence to me that Jesus really rose from the dead. Because without encountering Jesus beyond the grave, why on earth would someone like Paul, abandon his perfectly privileged, organized life to embrace a life of suffering and misunderstanding. He must have encountered a love beyond all knowing to get out of that logic of hate and murderous threats and to take on such a different way of being. If you read through Paul's letters several times, there are these statements that seem to be autobiographical. Galatians 2. This life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans five. Hope does not disappoint us for God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but I've got a big birthday coming up, so I've been reading books about getting old. And um <laughs> uh, Oh yeah, those are those verses, yeah. Um I read some of this one when we were on holiday and came across this great quote. It's a book about spirituality for people getting old. really. And he was explaining what happens when we pray, what what we're doing when we pray, not when we're interceding, but when we're being present to God. And he said this, You must try to pray so that in your prayer you open yourself in such a way that sometime, perhaps not today, but sometime you are able to hear God say to you, I love you. Those words addressed to you by God are the most important words you will ever hear. Because before you hear them, this is the clanger, nothing is ever completely right with you. But after you hear them, something will be right in your life at a very deep level. It is really true to me, I think. And I think it helps to explain the conversion of Paul. This overflowing of God's love for him in Christ totally changes his life around heals the anger and the sense of threat and puts him on a new path I think it expresses the deep longing of our hearts to be healed by the love of God and from that it is that we are drawn into his service and I wonder if that partly explains some of the problems that are being faced by churches who have been in the media lately. I think those churches rightly understand, probably better than we do, I think definitely better than we do, I think we're a bit coy about this, that Jesus' people are called to fish for people, as Peter did, as Paul did. But at the same time, two things follow. The success of fishing for people is totally up to God. It's a miracle, it's God's miraculous work. It's not something that can be put into a formula or an Amway scheme. The success of our attempts to fish for people are all up to God. And secondly, if our fishing is motivated by God's love, it will never be coercive or violent or manipulative. It will always be an invitation To hear those words, God loves you and loves you so much that Jesus died for you. In that knowledge, even if you can't know it yet deep within, but in the trust that it's true, come follow. Be strengthened to face whatever suffering there is for you in your life of following him. So question, are you, am I, putting myself in a place where I can hear God's word of love for me? And then am I inviting others? What am I doing to invite others to know that love? Am I willing to suffer for that? Because that finally is what that other lectionary reading from Revelation 5 is about. Revelation is a weird book. The images of lambs and sacrifices, let alone the images of scarlet whores and seven-headed beasts, is very foreign to us. But, it's Richard Borkham day. Um, Richard Borkham has got a great little book on Revelation. And when I read that book, I was like, Ah, oh, it's really simple. Revelation is really easy to understand at one level. It's straightforward. It's basically about the contrast between the Lamb's song and the barbarity and cruelty of life under empire. Empire's ancient and modern at the seminar. Who was at the seminar that Matthew ran on Thursday night about Ukraine and stuff? Uh, A few of you. So there was a seminar at the Chaplaincy on Ukraine. And afterwards I was talking to an anonymous member of the group. I said, what did you find? How did you find that? He goes, well, I actually just wanted to know about the succession of beasts in Revelation and where Ukraine and Russia and all that fitted into that. And I was like, fair enough. Um, But I think we don't need to get that complicated about it. The guts of it is that contrast between the Lamb's song and the cruelty of life under empire. In the bit that we read, and then we sung it twice, and then again in chapter 7 of Revelation, we're given this glimpse into eternity, into the courts of heaven, to what is ultimately really true, with all the splendid Baroque imagery that Revelation uses. And in those glimpses, we see those who have suffered for their commitment to Jesus. And we see them continuing to celebrate his death of love and his reign of suffering love. And those who have suffered and died for their commitment to Jesus have been sustained in their persecution by singing that song. So, when Revelation leaves behind the throne room of heaven, and it goes back to talking about dragons and multi-headed beasts and horsemen of the apocalypse and all of that. It's, I think, really saying, yes, in this world you will have trouble. You will have famine. You will have war. The world is too often ruled by beasts of violence and intimidation and exploitation. But their reign is temporary. Ultimate reality is that the lamb who was slain lives again. Ultimate reality is that the death and resurrection of Jesus puts the beastly powers of empires ancient and modern on notice. And so, says Revelation, you, church, as you suffer, keep singing the song of love. Keep singing the song of the lamb, because that song will sustain you Whatever the beasts represent, whatever it all means, that song will sustain you because Jesus will sustain you even unto death. I guess there are many people in Ukraine singing that song right now and wondering if it's worth singing that song as the missiles rain down. Philip Fountain back there and my dad were trading articles by email this past week or so about Christian pacifism. And Phil shared one from Christianity Today about Ukrainian Protestants who mostly come from the Mennonite tradition, which is the one Phil knows lots and lots and lots about. And they're mostly pacifists. And because of this war, lots of them have kind of found themselves moving further and further away from their pacifist roots. On Thursday night at that seminar, Jonathan gave a very clear defense of a Christian just war position. And I felt myself so torn I just could not make up my mind some of you have said to me what if the Ukrainians had done a party hacker and laid down in front of the tanks and left judgment to God and refused to buy into allegiance to nation less carbon dioxide would have been burned less profit would have been made from the sale of weapons of war might fewer people have died and part of me is like, yeah. And then part of me is like, yeah, but bullies must not go unpunished. What about the courage of Zelensky and his comrades? What if one had the opportunity, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer did with Hitler, to end the war through an act of violence? What would you do? I kind of wish I had Phil's clarity or Jonathan's clarity. I feel very torn. i right. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying this afterwards to George Burgess over here, wise man George Burgess in the front row, and George said, well, maybe you don't have to decide right now in the abstract. Maybe you just got to wait until you have to do something. And I quite like that thought, although maybe practicing now is better. But actually, maybe the best thing that we can do is to practice singing the Lamb's song and to do it with a willingness to suffer and a willingness to follow him. Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, translated a remarkable poem from Welsh that wrestles with this stuff, and it's about the example of those in Nazi Germany who died for their commitment to the lamb and the lamb's way of suffering love. I don't know whether to read the whole thing, it's probably a bit long, it's a great poem. But it sort of begins by saying, read it, okay, read it, all right. All right, Earth is a hard text to read. So that's, that's the guts of it. It's like really hard to work out what human history means. Very hard. And then it kind of describes the suffering of these martyrs, it's preferred to call them, and their death. And then imagines them joining the white-robed martyrs around the throne of the Lamb. Here it goes. Earth is a hard text to read. But the king has put his message in our hands for us to carry sweating whether the trumpets of his court sound near or far. So for these men, they were bearers of the royal writ, clinging to it through spite and hurts and wounding. The earth's round fullness is not like a parable where meaning breaks through a flash of lightning in the humid heavy dusk. Imagination will not conjure into flesh the depths of fire and crystal sealed under castle walls of wax, but still they kept their witness pure in Buchenwald, pure in the crucible of hate penning them in. They closed their eyes to doors that might have opened if they had put their names to words of cowardice, they took their stand, backs to the wall, face to face with savagery, and died there, with their filth and piss flowing together, arriving at the gates of heaven, their fists still clenched on what the king had written. Earth is a hard text to read but what we can be certain of is that the screaming mob is in substantial mist in the clear sky the thundering assertions fade to nothing there the Lamb's song is sung and what it celebrates is the apocalypse of a glory pain Lays bare. May we too sing his song. May we not be ashamed to suffer for him. I actually think we should stand and sing Iron Stay again, but that's okay. Um, Let's sing it, choosing to sing this song come what may in our life. 好